As we transition to our teaching time, before we do anything else, I'm going to introduce Chris in just a moment. But first, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of John, uh, chapter 20. We have just a few more sermons in the Gospel of John. We've been walking through for about a year and a half, and we're down to like the last three or four. And so I'm excited about that. Vicki, would you please come and read our scripture? And then I'll invite uh, our, our guest preacher to come up, and I'll introduce him too. Good morning. This is the Word of God. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw him, when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, the brethren, sorry, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from them, it is withheld. Amen. You know, um, I mentioned that we're, we're part of this Sojourn Network. Is this on? Can we see it on? I mentioned that we're part of this Sojourn Network, and uh, I love being part of that, and churches kind of in Washington, but really spread throughout the nation. Uh, but one of the things that is a key value for us as a church is we're not just partners with churches that we're officially in a network with. We belong uh, and partner with any church in the area that loves Jesus and teaches the Bible. Amen? And, and, and so last month, uh, as many of you know, uh, one of our pastors, Pastor Shane, uh, had a, a serious heart attack. I'm happy to report he's, he's continuing to make progress and doing really well. But I just reached out to a group of pastors in the area, and I said, hey, uh, I could use some support. I could use some love uh, in, in helping cover the pulpit, just to provide a little bit of bandwidth for me to be able to reprioritize and focus some things. And I sent this email out and sent the message out. And I think the very first text message I got back was from my brother, Chris Rich here. And so Chris, why don't you come up? I'll introduce him. Can we say welcome to Chris Rich? So, hey guys. Yeah. It's good to be here. So Chris pastors a church called Damascus Road in Marysville. Yep. And some of you will remember uh, Trevor and Elizabeth, Elizabeth who led worship for us for many years, and also Scott and Shandis. Shandis was part of our scripture reading team. Both of them have moved up further north and are part of the church that Chris pastors. So yeah, you're yeah. welcome for sending you such awesome people. Yeah, it's, it's good. That's, that's our growth plan, actually. Just, just steal people from stupid. Sound City. Okay, yeah, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Chris and I have known each other for a few years. We've connected yeah. at just a handful of different regional pastors, yeah. events. Uh, we actually sat really near each other during a training on the Gospel of John yeah, yeah, by the guys from the Bible Project. And so I know that I can trust what he's going to teach and preach. And you guys are going through the Gospel yeah, of John now yeah, as well. We so the same text you guys did last Easter. This is, uh, this is awesome to have him here. And and uh, uh, Chris is here. I'll let him introduce his family. But one of the things I love about Chris, he's uh, he's has more kids than me. Yeah, starting that's kind one of a quitter, Aaron. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he he uh, runs longer distances than I do, and he actually has a raspier voice than I do. So I love yeah. that, and uh, <laughs> I, I'm really thankful for this brother and thankful for his uh, willingness to come and, and just preach for us today. And I get to sit and to listen and to learn. And I, I, I told this to you, but I'll, I'll share this with everybody else. Yeah. The last couple of years at this pastor's retreat, I've spent you know the time at the retreat prepping a sermon to come back yeah, home and no preach. Good, and yeah. so I, I'm so thankful you've already served me and served the people by allowing me to have some time of rest this week yeah. at this retreat. Yeah. And so, friends, would you just join with me in praying for Pastor Chris here as I turn the pulpit over to him? And, and if you feel comfortable, you can extend a handout. But let me just pray for you, brother. Yeah, thanks, God, thank you for my brother Chris. Thank you for uh, partnership in the gospel. God, we as individual disciples are not called to do this Christian life alone. Mm-hmm. And we as local churches are not called to do this Christian life alone. And so I'm thankful for the partnership of Damascus Road. I'm thankful for the joy it is to be able to send some really wonderful people to be a part of that church community and the the peace that it gives my heart to know that people that I care about as a pastor are going to be loved and shepherded well uh, there as well. God, I pray for each and every person who's here right now. Would you give us soft and, and teachable and receptive hearts to hear the truth of your word? And would you fill my brother Chris with your spirit right now to be able to preach uh, with boldness and with truth and with grace. And may we all walk away with a bigger picture of our Savior Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. 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 Friends, let's say welcome to Chris one more time. Yeah. All right, guys, it's great to be here. Say, am I on? I'm good? 
Bueller. Okay. Hey, just a little bit about myself and Marysville. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm married to, to Tara. We've got six kids, five girls, one very lonely uh, boy. Uh, and so uh, we rolled in uh, with our 13 passenger van uh, that we bought from a Mormon bishop because that's who you have to buy those vans from. Uh, they're the ones that own that. They cornered the market on that. So I'm the lead pastor at Damascus Road Church in Marysville, Washington. That's a place. Okay, like I know you're like, wait, I think I've heard of that. It's that thing between here and like Bellingham or Vancouver, BC, like nice places you want to go. Uh, and you just kind of drive through Marysville. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's a, an awesome place to be. Um, we're a lot like Linwood. We have an old Highway 99 that goes through us. Uh, we have a massive mall, but we also have the largest casino in the state attached to it. So bonus, I guess, uh, with, with that. Um, and uh, yeah, Seattle Premium Outlets, I think they named it that way. So when Canadians came down, they wouldn't make it all the way into the city. Uh, and so they just kind of stop there and hang out. And so part of um, why um, Aaron wanted me to have you here today, um, he, he, didn't, he didn't want you to know this in advance, uh, but he's introducing me, uh, not just as guest preaching today, but as your next pastor. And, and what I mean by that is not that Aaron's leaving Sound City, um, but Marysville is where you can afford to live when you want to buy a house. So when, when, when you want to like, like get your starter home and you're like, oh, under a half mil and you pull up Redfin, you're like, honey, this is cute. Oh, Marysville. The, the, yeah, the, the town motto is you can afford it. So uh, anyway, glad to, glad to be here uh, gathering with you guys. Um, if you gathered last week and you've been in this series, uh, you know that last week was Easter Sunday. We were in John chapter 20, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, you can uh, turn it there. Uh, and just kind of, a, I want to start off with a bit of a way of a, of a recap, because the resurrection of Jesus is the foundational um, truth and event that all of human history revolves around and everything that we do as Christians and as a church points back to. And so um, at the beginning of John 20, when you guys were walking through that, there's this woman, Mary Magdalene, early on that first Easter morning, she, she comes to uh, the tomb of Jesus expecting to find him dead after being crucified uh, a few days earlier. And instead, the stone is rolled away and, and it's believed the tomb is empty. And she responds by running back to a couple of disciples, followers of Jesus, Peter and John, who wrote this gospel, who wrote this account that we're looking at of the life and ministry of Jesus. And they respond by, hey, let's go investigate. So they run back to the tomb. John, who recorded this, wants all of human history to know that he beat Peter to the tomb. He mentions it twice. So if you think it's annoying when like, people like us post on Strava or Facebook that we worked out, John put it in the Bible that he's faster than Peter. Uh, and so he wanted everybody to know. And they get there, and they find like the tomb is empty, and Jesus' burial cloths are even folded up in kind of this, I'm not going to need this anymore way. Because he's not dead, and he's not going to be dead. And so those, those claws aren't going to be used anymore, and they respond in different ways. John sees the empty tomb of Jesus, and it says he believes in the resurrection. He has his faith and trust in a risen Jesus. Peter, it says marveled, but the word actually more means kind of like, like uh, comprehending and, and processing. So Peter leaves, and he's kind of still wrestling. I think that's, that's okay. If you're coming in today, and you're like, hey, and I'm not sure about the resurrection of Jesus, Peter went into the empty tomb, and it took him a while to process. But then there's Mary, and she is uh, left alone at the tomb, and she is still in this place of just despair. In fact, she's, she's distraught, like, like the tomb is empty. She thinks the body's been stolen. Jesus is still dead. And even after she is, is comforted and, and confronted by not one but two angels, she's still in a place of doubt and despair. Now, now um, full disclosure, I've never met an angel. And, and I told first service, uh, like last week when I mentioned that, somebody came up to me in our service like, I have. I was like, cool, are you sure? Like, like what, like was it the 70s when that happened? Like, were you partying? Like, what's going on there? Uh, and like, okay, so that, that happens. Like, you know, we're not anti-angel. We're pro-Jesus is kind of the big idea. And so she's comforted and, and confronted by these angels, but she's still in, in despair. Until... She is met face to face with the risen Jesus who turns her despair into delight. 
He actually calls her by name. He says, I know you, Mary. I know your story. I know how you've been in, in spiritual and physical and emotional bondage. I've been here to set you free. I know that you are fearful that I am dead. No, I'm actually alive. And then Jesus not only calls her by name, that she will never forget. I mean, this is the whole day that the rest of her life is going to be reoriented around. But he commissions her for mission. He says, Mary, you're going to go back to the disciples. And you're going to tell them that you've seen me face to face. And you're going to give them some theology about who I am and, and what I'm doing and all that. And so Mary is the first evangelist who's sent to go and tell. To be on the mission of telling other people, not only that the tomb is empty, because you can kind of fake that, or you can, there's ways you can kind of make that happen. But no, Jesus is actually alive, that he's risen. And he says, go tell them. Well, I'll read the text here. Yeah, let's just go with the text. It's better than what I'm going to say. Okay, verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. So she's met by Jesus. And her wallowing in grief turns into glory. I think there's this thing that happens to us when we engage and encounter Jesus and experience um, the forgiveness of our sins and the idea of freedom and peace and grace and all these things is we just want to stay there. We want to live in that forever place with Jesus and his people where there's no more sin, no more suffering, no more tears. And yet, that's not where any of us are at. Jesus actually sends her. He actually has to tell her, Mary, don't cling to me. Like, we all want to stay with Jesus. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, you've been saved not to, not to stay with Jesus. I mean, we'll be with him for eternity. But to actually be sent by Jesus to go and tell others. And so um, she actually does do this, which is uh, amazing. Uh, and then Jesus kind of talks to her a little bit about his nature and, and, and um, that we, as Aaron said, and this kind of whole service has had this theme of, we are family. That if you're in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus as your savior and as your king, that you're no longer an estranged sinner. You're no longer an orphan from the family of God, but you've actually been adopted into the family of God. And he says, hey, go tell all the disciples that God is not your enemy. He's your father. Go and tell the disciples that I have risen that I will ascend and return to the Father, and that I am coming back to restore all things. That there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And so there's this, this theology that she's going to go share with, with them, and, and she actually is obedient. So she goes back. Hey, I've seen Jesus alive. Here's some things he wants us to know about who he is and how we should respond to him. And, and what an amazing experience. And you'd think that like having that awesome, like once in a lifetime, once in human history experience of seeing Jesus face to face would be enough to like, like encourage and empower and give endurance for the mission of God to flourish. And so she goes and she shares with the disciples who are supposed to go and do the same thing. And of course, they just like go get on mission and plant churches and do all these things. We'll, we'll see how they respond. Let's take a look. John chapter 20. Let's see how the mission's going after they've heard about the risen Jesus. We're at verse 19, let's look at verses 19 um, uh, through, uh, through 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Okay, let's talk about what's happening for a second. So it says it's that night. This is still Easter Sunday. So Easter was last week for us. It's still Easter Sunday, that first Easter Sunday for them. Uh, I don't know what your Easter Sunday night was like, maybe recovering from having ham or too much candy, right? You know, like here they are, they're gathered. They've been commissioned by Jesus to go and spread the gospel. And, and yet, like they're kind of hold up together. And it's okay for us a couple thousand years to like kind of sit in judgment, like whatever, you just heard about Jesus, like go get on mission, but let's, let's be a little gracious. They've had about one day to process the idea that the man who they saw crucified three days earlier, who was buried, is actually alive and risen. 
That the promises that he laid out over his three years of, of public uh, ministry and his preaching and teaching, that he would rise, that there's forgiveness of sin in him, that he is the son of God, that like, wait, all that was true? And so they're, they're, they're still processing. So if you're coming in today and you're not a believer in Jesus, you're just not sure about Jesus, like, no, this is a place and a space that you can process for days, for weeks, for months. Like, like what is true about the resurrection of Jesus? And, and our prayer, and I'm sure that the prayer of the church here is that you would land on, yes, Jesus is alive. And so for them, though, they've gathered together that night, and it says it was dark. And they were kind of holed up together. And I think it was dark because it was nighttime, but I think there's even some spiritual darkness there as well. You see that throughout. John he uses these themes of darkness and light. And so here it is. They're dark and, and, it's, and they're in hiding. And then we read this detail here that John wants us to know. The doors are locked. Why do we lock doors? Why do, why do, you, why do you lock the door of your house? Why do you click, click on your, on your car, right, when you, when you walk away from the parking lot? Like, what's driving that? It's fear, right? Fear that we know that the world's not perfect, right? We know that there's brokenness, that there's evil, that there's, that there's harm in the world. And so uh, fear ends up becoming for us this motivator because we know there's harm. And so our response with, with knowledge that there's harm, that there's pain out in the world, that there's sin and brokenness in the world drives us to places of self-protection. And so we take steps of looking for, for safety and security, what can I do to keep myself from experiencing pain? How can we prevent harm from happening to us? And so while Jesus' disciples are called to go out and preach the gospel, instead they've, they're, not, they're not going out, they're gathering together, and they're in a place where they're paralyzed with fear. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that, that, those fears look like. First type of fear that they're experiencing is, is external it's kind of that, that fear of man. It says specifically for them that, that they, they feared uh, the Jewish religious leaders. Like, that's a bit of a legitimate fear. I mean, the guy who they were following was just arrested, tried, falsely accused of all these crimes, like crucified and murdered by the oppressive Roman government that they don't align with. So there's, there's governmental persecution, there's religious persecution. They've been suffering economically. It's an impoverished area. And, and so like, if they're gonna murder our leader, how do you think this world that's opposed to Jesus is gonna respond to us as followers? Like they're legitimately fearful. And it's more than concern about people not liking them. It's this terror of, of attack. And ultimately, it's, it's a fear of death. Like the finality and fragility of death. The evil and suffering and pain are real things. And like, it's okay to respond to those things. Um, my, uh, one of my best friends um, uh, is an F-16 pilot, uh, or was rather. Uh, we both grew up wanting to be F-16 pilots. We all watched Top Gun and said, let's do that. And like, we're like, let's go do that. He, he did it. I joined the marching band. It's a different path, okay? So he did it. And, and then like now he, he flies for United Airlines, flies for them. He's not the luggage guy. He didn't lose your stuff, okay? Um, but he flies for United Airlines. And he told me, he goes, I love when I see people griping and complaining about the TSA lines. He said, because what I would love to do is have two types of flights. Those that are screened by the TSA, and those that aren't screened by the TSA. No screening at all, no security. And he goes, I'd love to see who volunteers to get on that plane, right? Like as frustrated as we are about things like that, we know they're necessary because there's real threats out there. Nobody's getting on the plane that says, this has never been screened, <laughs> right? We have no idea what's on this plane, right? And so here they are, they're in this place of terror and fear becomes such a powerful motivator that they want to be protected from these external threats. And so they've gathered together where there's this idea of safety in numbers, right? They've got all the other disciples around. Um, maybe for that night, it was likely maybe 10 or 12. Could have been twice as much. It wasn't a huge gathering. But when you're in fear, it's usually because you're isolated and alone. So you, you face external threats by trying to find your people, trying to find the people you're comfortable with. Because you don't feel as afraid. 
then when you realize, hey, a dozen people is not going to be much to overcome all the oppression and sin in the world. It's like, let's go ahead and get inside. And, And so while they were still probably in the city, they were sequestered away in a room, like hiding that maybe nobody knows about. For us as Christians in the church, how easy is it to be in the city that we live in, but gather with people we already know love Jesus, and hide away so that nobody else in the city even knows that we're here, right? So they've gathered, and, and, and they're, they're looking for safety. And I want you to ask yourself, what doors are you locking out of fear? What walls are you putting up or barriers you're putting up because you're afraid of people? And again, I don't mean like for safety aspect, but like specifically around the idea of, of what keeps us from engaging in the world around us with the mission of the gospel. See, they feared men for like physical threats, but, but for us, it's, it's far worse. Like we want people to like us. We want to be liked. Like nobody wants to be rejected. Nobody wants to be ridiculed. Like raise your hand if you're like, yes, I would love people to make fun of me and reject me. No, of course not, right? We all want to be received and respected. I mean, we are such fragile people emotionally, right? You know, you, you, you find out somebody unfriended you on Facebook and there's no greater offense on the planet, right? What, how dare they unfriend me? Gosh, I might as well like, you know, sue me or something. Like, at least then you'd have a legal thing and you have to know the reason why, right? And so we're rejected. And so what happens is we will go to our places of perceived security. And the reason I say perceived security is because we have this idea that if we just put the walls up, if we just huddle together, that that's where safety actually is. And so we go and we find our people and we wall ourselves out from that which is different or difficult or challenging. Um, I live up in Lake Stevens, uh, our, you know, right near Marysville. Uh, and and our, our community, I think, really deals with this um, in this way. We're 97% white. You have to cross the trestle to get to Lake Stevens. It's like a fortress, right? Everybody's kind of in that community. We can all see the lake and we're all, and it's really sa- it's safe and secure because we never have to engage with anybody that's different than us. And I don't think that's where God's called us to be in places of just trying to find our areas of security or safety or, or whatever that looks like for us. And so who or what have you closed yourself off to out of fear, out of what might happen if you actually engage? See, external fear is powerful, but there's a deeper fear that, that also drives us. There's internal fears. There's an internal fear inside of us. And that internal fear is understanding that, yes, while there's sin out in the world, there's brokenness and evil out in the world, that there's also sin in us. There's brokenness in us. And that sin and that brokenness and that failure, it drives us to places of real shame. Right? When you actually look at yourself in the mirror of your soul and what you know in your heart is what is there deep down in your soul isn't that great. So you can't just do this thing where we say, hey, the answer for fear is just overcome. You know, just kind of, you know, I'd love to be that high school football coach who just tells you to rah, rah, like break through your fears, you know, trust yourself. Like um, at the American Girl doll store, the doctrinal statement is follow your inner star, right? And I know that because I said five daughters. You know, we spent a lot of money at the American Girl doll store, like second mortgage on the house money, right? So like, we're not gonna have any money for weddings for any of them. And I can't even do a GoFundMe because our last name's Rich. Like who is donating to the Rich Girl Wedding Fund? No one is donating to that. So Sorry, girls, you're living at home until Jesus comes back. So that's just the way that goes, right? So no, we know when we look inside of ourselves, we're just not that courageous. For these disciples of Jesus who've walked with Jesus for three years, over this last week, this holy week that you guys have been looking at for a while, nearly every single one of them failed Jesus in a significant way. They've all either left him or denied him or not stood up for him. Like they realize in their own hearts when their courage was actually tested, they were all found wanting. When their character was truly revealed, they're not courageous, they're cowards. 
And now you've heard news that Jesus, who looked you in the eye as he was being beaten, while you denied him to a middle school girl, is alive. And he's God. And he's the savior of the universe. He's the king of God's people. And you know how faithless you've been to him? You know how much you've failed him? What if he shows up? What if I've got to look that Jesus face to face again? How's he going to respond to me knowing I've failed him at the time of his greatest need? Knowing that I've failed, that my character has been shown to be wanting. See, each of us as disciples of Jesus, each of us as people, we know we've failed God. Like all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God sees it and he knows it. And I think we have this fear of shame because of sin. How are we going to be received by the risen Jesus when he meets us face to face? So I think part of why they got the door locked isn't just fear of the religious leaders out there, but what if that risen Jesus actually shows up? And so they've gathered together, right? They're their little accountability group. There's this weird thing. Sometimes it happens like with men's purity groups, right? When they all get together is, is it kind of like, well, I know uh, everybody's kind of failed this week, so maybe nobody's going to call me out on anything. And so the protection is just in like, what, what if we all just kind of kind of this, this, this gospel community where we're all accepted and allowed to just keep failing. The problem is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And so while they're gathered together as kind of this community group of, of failed disciples, they think they've locked out the external threats. They think they've maybe even locked out Jesus. Hear this. You cannot lock out Jesus, even from your places of perceived security. Jesus will always break into the places that you think you've honed out for yourself, your own safe place, your own secure place. It's just for you or just you and your friend. Jesus will enter into that place and let you know where true security and peace is found. And when he does that, it says he, he, he comes in, he's not bounded by earthly limitations, the door's locked, but Jesus shows up and these, these, these men and maybe women as well who are accountable to Jesus, what does Jesus say to them? Peace be to you. And you're like, well, maybe that was like a greeting at the time or maybe that's just how they said hi. No, this was more than a greeting that they were given. It was actually a status that Jesus says they now possess. See, in the Bible, the idea of peace is, is not the, the weak peace that we have, which is just absence of conflict, right? Oh, there was a war, now there's peace because people aren't shooting at each other anymore. When the Bible talks about peace, it's this idea of shalom. It means wholeness with God, that the God who created you and created the world good, that you have perfect relationship with him. Purpose, joy, life, provision, protection. There is a wholeness in your relationship with God. And so as Jesus meets them, they're all in this place and we are all in this place knowing that sin has separated us from God. We also know that sin has placed us in conflict with God. And we're like, how is God responding to us in conflict when the risen Jesus meets us face to face? Jesus shows up, he's in their midst and he tells them, your status is not enemy combatant, but peace to you. You are in reconciled relationship with the God who has made you. You are in restored relationship with God and his people. And, and so he doesn't look at you and see your failures and your faithlessness and your betrayal and your sin. He says, no, no, your status before God is peace. And I bet there is maybe a bit of an exhale. Okay, okay, um, but Jesus, we, we really failed like we've, we failed in, in big ways. Like, you know, you've talked about our sin and how sin separates us from God and like God takes sin seriously. And so while Jesus tells them about peace that comes from him, he shows them. So when we ask ourselves a question like, how does Jesus bring peace? 
How can an actual conflict between a holy, just, perfect God and sinners in rebellion from God, like how does that conflict end? Does God just say, hey, sin, no big deal. Let's not worry about it anymore. Hey, I know you guys meant well. No, God takes sin incredibly seriously. In fact, we know God takes sin seriously specifically because of the cross. The seriousness of sin is displayed on the cross. And so they are are comforted that they have peace with God. And how they are comforted is Jesus begins to show them his hands and his side. He says, let me tell you where peace comes from. It comes from not by what you have done, but what I have done for you on the cross. And so by Jesus showing them his hands and his pierced side, it's, it's a bit of an apologetic. So there's, there's this idea like, well, maybe Jesus has had like a twin brother, Larry, who was just like hanging out for 33 years. And he's like, ha ha, now we're going to like do this resurrection hoax. No, that didn't happen. He's showing them the holes in his hands, his side pierced, saying, if you want to know where peace comes from, it comes from the cross. It comes from the work that I've done, where I took the defeat that you deserve for your sin, where you received the victory you don't deserve with Jesus' resurrection. And more than just getting back to even, you were actually given God's righteousness. So he says, hey, you're, you're no longer just like, okay, now you're neutral, but you are now, as we said, that big core identity of son or daughter. And so the Bible elsewhere says, by his stripes we are healed. We are made whole, have peace with, shalom with God. We have wholeness with God because of Jesus' broken body, his shed blood. And then we get to see how they responded. And so it says here, I love it in the text, it just kind of feels like a bit of 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 an underwhelming statement. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Like, I don't know about you, like I'm glad when I find that last waffle fry at the bottom of the bag at Chick-fil-A, right? Cool. Waffle Friday. We got some Chick-fil-A sauce. Like, and, and my kids are sad because they heard I was coming to come and preach and teach in Linwood today. And they're like, cool, we can go to Chick-fil-A. And that's when I had to tell them. No, why? It's Sunday. I know. They're closed. Boo. Yeah. Uh, boo, Christians closing restaurants. Ha ha. Yeah. Quote me on that one, Aaron. Yeah, I'll never get to come back. Um, no, I mean, with great assurance, I do firmly believe that in the new heavens and new earth, Chick-fil-A is never closed. Okay. So like that's... But until then, we're in the not perfect place yet, okay? And so, like, they're glad. Like, no, no, a better translation isn't glad, but overjoyed. That the sorrow that they had on Good Friday seeing Jesus murdered, the tension they walked in on Saturday is now replaced with this overjoyed of, we know what the cross means now. It was for us. We know that Jesus being alive is like, True and not just a rumor. And so here they are. They're in the presence of Jesus. And, and, and while they've been concerned that, that, that God might deal with their sin and failure in a way that is convicting, no, instead, they're not condemned, but they are confident in the work of Jesus in their place. And so they have Jesus' presence. And by being in the presence of the risen Jesus, it moves them from a place of fear to a place of peace, a place of peace, a place of wholeness. And again, I think we believe somehow that if we have that, that sense of peace, that, well, that's, that's what God, all, all he wants from us or wants for us. I want us to see as we move forward that they've been moved from fear to peace, but they've been, been moved from fear to peace for a purpose. So part two, verses 21 and 22, we see um, that we are moved from peace to mission. Verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Peace with God drives us to the mission of God. Peace with God is there to drive us to the mission of God. And so when Jesus comes into our place of perceived protection, yes, he gives us his presence. Yes, we have peace, but he's also there to propel us to his mission. And so there's this freedom and confidence in knowing that in the presence of the risen Jesus, yes, we're not just condemned. 
Like, great to know that we're not condemned. Great to know that we have confidence that we can stand before God uh, with our sin paid for. But more than that, or in addition to that, we are commissioned to go on his mission. So Jesus is saying to them, you thought the best place for your survival was hiding together and protecting yourself. And instead, Jesus shows up. He says, I'm here to call you not to stay in comfort, but to actually be a people who go in confidence. Right? I believe the inward trajectory of the human heart and churches is always inward, even as Christians. Right? We start to focus so much inward. And Jesus says, no, I, there'll be a time for comfort. I've commissioned you to go on mission. And so if you've been saved by Jesus, you need to know you've been sent by Jesus. If you've been saved by Jesus, you've been sent by Jesus to leave places of safety and actually be sent. And then Jesus tells them kind of, what, what does the mission look like? Like, what, what, are, we, what are we here for? What, what, are we, what are we doing? Well, it says that we're sent like Jesus. Okay. What was Jesus sent to do? Well, you guys have been in John, as Aaron said, for like a year and a half. You just kind of look at what does the mission of Jesus look like? Well, here's, here's four quick things. Number one, Jesus was sent to do God's will, to carry out the purpose of the world, to bring God glory and to bring flourishing to people. Those two things actually aren't mutually exclusive. When God is, is, is made much of in the world, there's joy for the people he has created. Number two, to speak God's words. I mean, Jesus shows up and he gives glory to God, but he is, he's preaching and teaching. Gospel truth about where, where repentance and forgiveness of, uh, of sin comes through faith with clarity and boldness, where there's things that are true about God, that God made everything good, that sin has separated us from God, that God loves and knows his people so much he's pursued them in and through Jesus, and that God will come back in Jesus and restore all things and make it all new with a new heavens and new earth. No more sin, no more suffering, no more tears. Like that's God's word to his people. Number three, carrying out God's works. That while we're in this world that has sin and brokenness and, 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 and want and, and burdens and, and all this, that we are to actually be people who are agents of peace, bringing healing, provision, while seeking mercy and freedom for those who've been enslaved emotionally, physically, spiritually, economically, like whatever that looks like, we're to be agents of peace and provision to the world. But all of this is under the umbrella of and, and really pointing to the most clear part of Jesus' mission, which is to call people into the kingdom of God, to actually have souls won for salvation, that apart from the God of the universe uh, and being reconciled with him through Jesus, you are lifeless and without hope. You are actually spiritually dead. And Jesus says, I want you to go out and be about the mission of telling people where life and hope are found and they're found in Jesus alone. And so we're not sent in the world just to be um, agitators, although some aspect of, of living the Christian life is countercultural, but we're not like going out as revolutionaries to flip the world upside down. What we're actually doing is calling the world to be reoriented right side up where relationship with God is put into its proper place, where we are no longer people separated, but we are people restored and, and reconciled. So you see this massive mission, and you start to ask yourself, like, well, no, I, I just feel like retreating from the world when God's called us to advance. This, this mission seems a little overwhelming, and it should because it's, it's big, it's ambitious. And so... Like, good luck doing this all on our own. And yet we have this kind of, I'll take it from here, Jesus attitude, right? Like, like, okay, Jesus sent us on the mission. Like, okay, cool. We've got some great marketing plans. So make sure we have good coffee. Oh, let's make sure we have good music. Like, maybe bouncy houses will do it. Like, what can we give away? Like, that's all great. Cool if you guys are doing bouncy houses at some point. We'll, br we'll bring the kids. Yeah, yeah, it'll be, it'll be great. Um, so, um, yeah, all for the glory of Jesus. That's great. But, right, we, we just, we start to think of all the fleshly ways that we can carry out the mission. And, and, and then we start putting pressure on ourselves that we're going to be the ones who actually carry this out. And so Jesus doesn't say, I've sent you, now go. No, there's this, this important, essential 
step that happens in between because we need more than just a powerful experience. We need more than just positive enthusiasm. We need more than just our own personal endurance to drive us to mission. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is not a mission that we can carry out on our own. If the mission is going to advance, it's going to be because the Spirit empowers us. See, simply put, if we're going to be sent like Jesus, we have to be a people who have first received. What do I mean by that? When Jesus began his public ministry, when he was baptized, do you remember what it says happened? It said that the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. God the Son, fully God, fully man, begins his public ministry and he is empowered by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. A pastor that Aaron and I are both familiar with and engage with often on different projects, a local guy, Jeff Vanderstelt, says it this way, if Jesus needed the Holy Spirit for mission, so do we. If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit for mission, so do we. We are such fragile, dependent people. The Holy Spirit is necessary. And then it says this awesome phrase that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Similar language to Genesis chapter two where God breathed life into people. During your small groups this week, I hope you guys dive into Ezekiel chapter um, 37. Um, Some study questions we sent out for that. In Ezekiel chapter 37, we see the same language of Jesus speaking to his people here. And it's the imagery, if you know your Bibles, of the valley of dry bones. It's this idea of a spiritual wasteland of death. Just, I mean, is there anything just more decaying and depressing than, than dry bones? And then it says, life was breathed on them. In the same way Jesus is breathing the Holy Spirit on these people. And then what is, what's the result? It says these dry bones become an army. Now, This is not like a creepy zombie army, okay? It actually is really clear. It's not an army of of death and destruction and, and vengeance to go wage war against all those evil sinners. It's actually an army of life of people sent out to tell others about who God is, to breathe life into them through the Holy Spirit. It says this army is an army of life. It says that it's filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's empty, it's full, comprehensive. There's wholeness there. It says in chapter 37 that they are part of a covenant of peace. It means that this army is defined by, yes, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're spiritually alive. And yet they've also been given the promises of God that the relationship with God is restored. What an awesome thing to be a people of promise. And they're experiencing that peace and that wholeness. Why? Because they're in God's presence. It says God dwells with them, that they are his God and that he is their people. And then it says, not just that they're going to have the presence of God, but they are sent out to be witnesses of God to the nations. What an awesome kind of formula or flow for how the Holy Spirit works in and through God's people. He takes people who are spiritually dead, breathes life into them, brings them together as an army, right? Organized for a mission and purpose of life. That army is, is not dead or empty or on their own power. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They've got the promises of God that he's going to bring peace to his people. They get to experience the presence of God in their midst and they're sent out to go tell the nations, I mean, he's talking to people in a room in Jerusalem. And 2,000 years later, we're in a room in Linwood. And there's even people up in Marysville that love Jesus. I mean, it's amazing. Made it to the north part of the county. So three things I want us to look at as we see how and why the Holy Spirit's necessary for us in this mission. Number one, the Holy Spirit power is necessary to be effective. See, if it's a valley of dry bones, and the Bible also says that we're spiritually dead, without God, then if we're going to be on mission, preaching the gospel, hoping that life is happening, without the Holy Spirit, it's as effective as if we all walked out to a cemetery and stood at the edge of the cemetery and started yelling at the tombstones. I mean, maybe even like you write out like a really good sermon, not like this one, like a good one, right? And you, and you just like start preaching this awesome, eloquent sermon and you're like, stand up, walk, live your life, like be a better husband or parent, like get rid of your hurts, hangups and habits and all the pastoral cliches, right? Like, like what's gonna happen? Nothing, because it's a cemetery. They're spiritually 
dead. And you're like, why isn't it working? Because life needs to be breathed in. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So what we're doing is not trying to drive people to a decision or manipulate them, but to announce and proclaim what God has already done, to just tell the truth about who God is, and then sit back and watch the Holy Spirit work. Watch him breathe life into people. Number two, Holy Spirit power is necessary for our endurance. See, we're, we're not in that place where there's no more sin, suffering, and tears, right? There's going to be seasons of difficulty. Living as a disciple of Jesus, I want you to know, it's a life of purpose, it's a life of peace, but it is not a perfect life. There will be difficulty. There will be um, seasons of persecution and opposition. In this room that Jesus is talking to these men and women, uh, all those men were martyred as disciples. Like, they suffered for that. And so, if, if everything is about our energy then like, the best we're going to be able to do is kind of sprint out for a while. When being a disciple of Jesus and being on the mission of Jesus isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. It's an endurance race and running. And without relying on the Spirit's power, when we have fear, we're just going to begin to seek control and experience anger, and we're just going to shrivel up. And we're just going to tap out. Right? All these guys have been discipled by Jesus for three years. And on their own, they all failed and crumbled like in a day. We need the Holy Spirit for endurance. Number three, last point on this. Holy Spirit's power and mission is necessary for our encouragement. God has called us to be his people to go on a journey and through many seasons in this journey, it's gonna feel like wilderness where there's not just direct opposition, but sometimes there's dryness. Sometimes there's just Lack of fruitfulness, right? It's been a while since we've seen anybody be baptized. Or, man, I'm just not sure if I still see God working here. And, and, and if we just rely on our own enthusiasm, you just need to know your enthusiasm will run out when you go through long seasons of discouragement. There will be, like, let me just set expectations for you well. There will be at times as a Christian long, prolonged seasons of discouragement that are absolutely more than you can bear. And in those moments and in those times, we are to rely on the person and work and power of the Holy Spirit to be encouraged, to have endurance. And, and I think that knowing the Spirit is empowering the mission should just give us so much more peace and assurance that even as us individually as disciples and as a church, that the effectiveness, and dare I say success, of the mission of God isn't determined on us. But that mission will be as fruitful, and again, as I say, successful, as the third member of the Holy Trinity grants. Like what peace do we have? Encouragement that this is in God's hands. The Holy Spirit's gonna be the one that continues the mission, that ultimately we can, we can have freedom and preach with boldness and confidence knowing that it's Jesus is the one who saves. And that's the big idea as we close, that Jesus is the one who saves. It's this last verse, I'll read it and then we'll close. Last verse, John chapter 23, or sorry, 20 verse uh, 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. If you came in with a like uber religious, maybe even Catholic background, maybe you're reading that and you're like, wait, as the church, are we supposed to go around like deciding who's forgiven and like, like, or are you in sin right now? Do you need to like go run to your small group leader or grab Aaron and confess your sin? No, that's, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. What he's saying is, I want you to know that when you're sent like me, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that you are going on a mission where you are bringing forgiveness and freedom to people who are in sin and bondage. That that is what you are sent to do and to proclaim. And that what is at stake is nothing less than the eternal destiny of individual souls. And so he's saying, hey, if you go out and do this mission empowered by the Spirit, you are actually being an agent who's bringing forgiveness and freedom to people who need it. And where you are not, and where you are staying in your room, locked up with your safe people, you're withholding freedom and forgiveness from people who need it. We are a saved people, but we are absolutely a sent people. And so 
This is the only place in, in John's gospel where he talks explicitly about the forgiveness of sin uh, and that it's being tied specifically to Jesus Christ alone. I know for some people that's incredibly offensive, but it's the truth of the gospel that without Jesus, the Bible is so clear that there is not forgiveness of sin. There is judgment and there is justice. With Jesus, with belief and faith and trust in him, there's forgiveness, there's freedom, and there is the promise of a forever life with God and his people now and forever. Like there's hope. It's hopeless without Jesus, hope with Jesus. And so I don't say all that so you're like, okay, well, I guess we'll go evangelize this week or next week's invite your friend to church time and we'll have Aaron will yell at him or Aaron's probably like smiling and nice. I've got the nasty beard, so like, I'm kind of like, right? So Aaron's great, right? Invite people to churches are all good things, right? I don't tell you any of this to guilt you because I hope that we're not motivated ever by guilt but by the glory of God that we've seen. I want you to think about who is the first person that told you about Jesus? Who told you about forgiveness and freedom that comes from faith in Jesus? Know that somebody told them. Know that somebody told them. And on and on and on. If you work that chain all the way back, do you know where you get? You will get back to this room right here. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. People have been on this mission for a couple thousand years. And then we're gonna keep being on this mission until Jesus comes back. And so if you're coming in today and maybe this, this isn't you, then I just pray that this would be your day where you repent of your sin, of trusting yourself, and you place your faith in Jesus alone. That you'd become a Christian. That you'd be baptized. That you'd become part of this family adopted as a son or daughter of God and then be sent on mission to go and tell others. Know for all of us, if you're in Christ, just exhale and have freedom knowing it's God who saves. So that we can, can work on mission, we can run on mission, be on mission, uh, and we can rest well knowing that we are not even necessary for the mission. But God is so good to us to invite us to participate on being part of this amazing mission of telling everyone and anyone to simply trust Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are good to us and you are good for us. I thank you for this gathering to get to open up your word, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would fill hearts as individuals, that you would move people from death to life. If there's anyone here who's not known and loved and served you, Lord, that they would put their faith and trust in the resurrected Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just continue to work in and through Sound City Bible Church and through, through your church here in Snohomish County and to the world. God, I pray for encouragement, for effective mission, and God, I pray for endurance through long seasons. God, you are so good to us and you are good for us. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right.